You are listening to the First Person Drunk Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Miles Tabor. Before we get started, a quick side note. I don't know how many of you are whiskey fans, but I've been drinking Maker's Mark, and you know the red wax that they drip over the top. I've been trying to burn some of that. I'm pretty sure that that is not wax at all. I am fairly certain, after some experimentation, that that is just plastic that they've melted over the top, not wax at all. Just uh, in case you were wondering or planning on participating in your own experimentation, these are my findings. Anyhow, as I was saying, this is the First Person Drunk Podcast. I'm bringing to you Danny's Own Story by Don Marquis. Today we have Chapter 8. This podcast is, as always, brought to you by me, Miles Tabor, by the public domain, and by whiskey. Any errors that you hear in the text are the fault of one of those three preceding. The next day, we broke camp and was gone from that place, and I took away with me the half of a ring me and Martha had chopped in two. We kept on going, and by the time pumpkins and county fairs was getting ripe, we was into the upper left-hand corner of Ohio, and there Louie left us. One day, Dr. Kirby and me was walking along the main street of a little town, and we seen a bang-up funeral procession coming. It must have been one of the Grand Army of the Republicans, for they was some of the old soldiers in buggies riding along behind, and a big string of people following in more buggies and some on foot. Everybody was looking mighty solemn. But there was one man sitting beside the undertaker on the seat of the hearse that was looking solemner than them all. It was Louis, and I'll bet the corpse himself would have felt proud and happy and contented if he could have known the style Louis was given that funeral. It wasn't nothing Louis done, for he didn't do nothing but just sit there with his arms folded onto his bosom and look sad. But he done that better than anyone else. He done it so well that you forgot the corpse was the chief party to that funeral. Louis took all the glory from him. He had just naturally stole that funeral away from its rightful owner with his enjoyment of it. He seen the doctor and me as the hearse went by our corner, but he never let on. A couple of hours later, Louis comes into camp and says he is going to quit. The doctor asks him if he has inherited money. No, says Louis, but my aunt has given me a chance to go into business. Louis says he was born nigh there, and was prowling around town the day before, and run across an old aunt of his and he had forgot all about. She is awful respectable and religious and ashamed of him being into a traveling show, and she has offered to lend him enough to buy a half share in a business. Well, says the doctor, I hope it will be something you are fitted for and will enjoy, but I've noticed that after a man gets the habit of roaming around this terrestrial ball, it's mighty hard to settle down and watch his vine and fig tree grow. Louis smiles in a sad sort of way, which he seldom smiled for anything, and he says he guesses he'll like the business. He says there ain't many businesses he could take to. Most of them makes you forget this world is but a fleeting show. 
but he has found a business which keeps you reminded all the time that dust is dust and ash to ashes shall return. When he first went into the medicine business, he said, he was drawn to it by the diseases and the sudden dying's off it always kept him in mind of. He thought there wasn't no other business could lay over it for that kind of comfort, but he has found out his mistake. What kind of business are you going into? asked the doctor. I am going to be an undertaker, says Louis. My aunt says this town needs the right kind of an undertaker bad. Mr. Wilcox, the undertaker that town has, is getting pretty old and shaky, Louis says, and young Mr. Wilcox, his son, is too light-minded and goes at things too brisk and airy to give it the right kind of a send-off. People don't want him joking around their corpses, and he is a fat young man and can't help making puns even in the presence of the departed. Old Mr. Wilcox's eyesight is getting so poor, he made a scandal in that town only the week before. He was composing a departed's face into a last smile, but he went too far with it and gave the departed one of them awful, mean, devilish kind of grins, like he had died with a bad temper on. By the time the departed family had found it out, things had went too far, and the face had set that away, so it wasn't safe to try to change it any. Now, old Mr. Wilson had several brands of last looks. One was called Bear Up For We Will Meet Again. The one that had went wrong was his favorite look, named O oh Death, Where Is Thy Victory? Now, Louis's aunt says she will buy him a partnership if she is satisfied he can fill the town's needs. They have a talk with the Wilcoxes, and he rides on the hearse that day for a tryout. His aunt peeks out behind her bedroom curtains as the procession goes by her house, and when she sees the style Louis is given to that funeral and how easy it comes to him, that settles it with her on the spot. And it seems the whole darn town liked it, too, including the departed's family. Louis says there is a lot of chance for improvements in the undertaking game by one whose heart is in his work, and he is going into that business to make a success of it and try and get all the funeral trade for miles around. He reads us an advertisement of the new firm he has been figuring out for that town's weekly paper. I cut a copy out when it was printed, and it is about the genteelest thing like that I even seen, as follows. Wilcox and Sims, invite your patronage. This earth is but a fleeting show, and the black-winged angels wait for all. It is always a satisfaction to remember that all possible has been done for the deceased. See our new line of coffin, line caskets a specialty, large work solicited. Time and tide wait for no man, and his days are few and full of troubles. The paths of glory lead but to the grave, and none can tell when mortal feet may stumble. When in town, drop in and inspect our new embalming outfit. It is a pleasure to show goods and tools, even if your family needs no work done just yet. Outfits for mourners who have been bereaved on short notice a specialty. We take orders for tombstones. Look at our line of shrouds, robes, and black suits for either sex and any age. Give us just one call, and you will entrust 
future embalmings and obsequies in your family to no other firm. Will Cox and Sims, Main Street, near Depot. Now the doctor, he reads it over careful and says she ought to drum up trade all right. Louie tells us that maybe if he can get that town educated up to it, he will put in a crematory where he will burn them too. But it will go slow for that their solemn and beautiful way of returning ashes to ashes make might make some prejudice in such a religious town. The last we seen of Louis was a couple days later when he told him goodbye in his shop. Old Mr. Wilcox was explaining to him the science of them last looks he was so famous at when he was a younger man. A young Mr. Wilcox was laying on a table for Louis to practice on, and Louis was learning fast. But he nearly broke down when he said goodbye, for he liked the doctor. Doc, he says, you been a good friend, and I won't never forget you. They ain't much I can do, and in this deceitful world, words is less than actions. But if you ever was to die within a hundred miles of me, I'd go, he says. And no other hands but mine should lay you out. And it wouldn't cost you a cent either, nor you neither, Danny. We thanked him kindly for the offer and went. Now, the next town we come to, there was a county fair, and the doctor run across an old pal of his'n who had a show on the grounds and wanted to hire him for what he called a ballyhoo man, which was the first I ever hearn them called that, but I got better acquainted with them since. They are the fellas that stands out in front and gets you all excited about the Siamese twins or the bearded lady or the snake charmer or the Circassian beauties or whatever it is inside the tent as represented upon the canvas. The doctor says he will do it for a week just for fun and maybe pick up another fella to take Louie's place out there. Now this fella's name is Waddy Sanders and his wife is a fat lady in his own show and very good-natured when not intoxicated nor mad at Waddy. She was billed on the curtains outside for 550 pounds, and Waddy says she really does weigh nigh on to 400. But being a fat lady's husband ain't no bed or rosy ease at that, Waddy tells the doctor. It's like every other trade. It has its own particular responsibilities and troubles. She is a terrible expense to Waddy on account of eating so much. The tales that fella told of how hard he has to hustle showing her off in order to support her appetite would have drawn tears from a pawnbroker's sign, as Dr. Kirby says, which he found it cheaper for his whole show to board and sleep in the tent, and we done likewise. Well, I got a job with that show myself. Waddy had a wild man canvas, but no wild man, so he made me an offer, and I took him up. I was from Borneo where they're all supposed to be captured. Just as Dr. Kirby would get to his talk about how the wild man had been catched after great struggle and expense, with four men killed and another crippled, there would be an awful rumpus on the inside of the tent with wild howlings and the sound of revolvers shot off and a woman screaming. Then I would come busting out all blacked up from head to heel with no more clothes on than the law provided for yipping loud and shaking a big spear and rolling my eyes, and Waddy would come rushing after me, firing his revolver. 
I would make for the doctor and draw my spear back to jab it clean through him, and Waddy would grab my arm. And the doctor would whirl round, and they would wrestle me to the ground, and I would be handcuffed and dragged back into the tent, still howling and struggling to break loose. On the inside, my part of the show was to be wild in a cage. Now, I would be chained to the floor, and every now and then I would get wilder and rattle my chains and shake the bars and make jumps at the crowd and carry on and make believe I was too mad to eat the pieces of raw meat Waddy throwed into the cage. Waddy had a snake charmer woman with an awful long bony kind of neck working for him, and another fella that was her husband and eat glass. The show opened up with them two doing what they said was a comic turn. Then the fat lady come on. Whilst everybody was admiring her size and looking at the number of pounds on them big cheat scales Waddy weighed her on, the long-necked one would be changing to her snake clothes, which she only had one snake, and he had been in the business so long and was so kind of worn out and tired with being charmed so much, it always seemed like a pity to me the way she would take and twist him around. I guess they never was a snake was worked harder for the little bit he got to eat, nor got no sicker of a woman's society than poor old Reginald did. After Reginald had been charmed a while, it would be the glass eater's turn, which he really eat it, and the doctor says that kind always dies before they is fifty. I never knowed his right name, but what he went by was the human ostrich. Waddy's wife was awful jealous of Mrs. Ostrich, but she got the idea she was carrying on with Waddy. One night, I hearin' an argument from the fenced-off part of the tent Waddy and his wife slept in. She was settin' on Waddy's chest, and he was gasping for mercy. You know it ain't true, says Waddy, kind of smothered-like. It is, says she. You own up it is. And she give him a jounce. No, darling, he gets out of him. You know I never could bear them thin, scrawny kind of women. And he begins to call her pet names of all kinds and beg her, please, if she won't get off complete, to set somewhere else a minute. For his chest he can feel giving way and his ribs caving in. He called her his plump little woman three or four times and she must have softened up some. For she moved, and his voice comes stronger, but not less meek and lowly. And he follows it up. Dolly, darling, he says, I bet I know something my little woman don't know. What is it? the fat lady asked him. You don't know what a cruel, weak stomach your hubby has got, Waddy says, awful coaxing-like. Or you wouldn't bear down quite so hard onto it. Please, Dolly. She begins to blubber and say he is making fun of her big size. And if he is mean to her any more or ever looks at another woman again, she will take anti-fat and fade away to nothing and ruin his show. And it is awful hard to be made a joke of all her life and not to have no steady home nor nothing like other women does. You know I worship every pound of you, little woman, says Waddy, still coaxing. Why can't you trust me? You know, Dolly, darling, I wouldn't take your weight in gold for you. 
and he tells her they never was but once in all his life he has so much as turned his head to look at another woman, and that was by way of a plutonic admiration, and no flirting intended, he says, and even then it was before he had met his own little woman, and that other woman, he says, was plump too, for he would never look at none but a plump woman. What did she weigh? asks Swati's wife. He tells her a measly little three hundred pound. But she wasn't refined like my little woman, says Waddy, and when I seen that, I passed her up. And inch by inch, Waddy coaxed her clean off of him. But the next day, she hearin' him and Mrs. Ostrich giggling about something, and she has a regular tantrum, and just for meanness goes out and falls down on the racetrack, pretending she has fainted and they can't move her no ways, not even roll her. But finally, they rousted her out of that by one of these here sprinkling carts backing up again her and turning loose. But aside from them occasional mean streaks, Dolly was real nice, and I kind of got to liking her. She tells me that because she is so fat, no one won't take her serious like a human being, and she wished she was like other women and had a family. That woman wanted a baby, too, and I bet she would have been good to it, for she was awful good to animals. She had been big from a little girl, and never got no sympathy when sick nor nothing. And even whilst she played with dolls as a kid, she knowed she looked ridiculous, and was laughed at. And by jings, they was the funniest thing come to light before we left that crowd. That poor, derned, old, fat fool had a doll, yet all hid away. And when she was alone, she used to take it out and cuddle it. Well, Dolly never had many friends. And you couldn't blame her much if she did drink a little too much now and then. Or get mad at Waddy for his goings-on and kneel down on him whilst he was asleep. Them was her only faults. And I liked the old girl. Yet I could see Waddy had his troubles too. Now that show busted up before the fair closed. For one day, Waddy's wife gets mad at Mrs. Ostrich and tries to set on her. And then Mrs. Ostrich gets mad too and six Reginald onto her. Waddy's wife is awful scared of Reginald, who don't really have ambition enough to bite no one, let alone a lady built so round everywhere he couldn't have got a grip on her. And as far as wrapping himself around her and squashing her to death, Reginald never seen the day he could reach that fur. Reginald's feelings is plumb friendly toward Dolly when he is turned loose, but she don't know that, and she has some hysterics and faints in earnest this time. Well, there was an awful hullabaloo when she come to, and for the sake of peace in the family, Waddy has to fire Mr. and Mrs. Ostrich and poor old Reginald out of their jobs, and the show is busted. So... Dr. Kirby and me lit out for other parts again.